he was kind of graded on a curve both for good and for ill. There was a lot of people yeah. going, like, well, Sam Raimi's got a new horror film. And other people were like, it's not that great. Right. And they're like, well, you can't expect everything to be Evil Dead. No, but I can expect everything to not be Spider-Man 3. That's true. So You can expect everything but one thing. <laughs> Spider-Man 3. That's, yeah, good point. That's logic. Recorded in our Nerdhaven studios, this is Pop Medieval, your host, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina Mack. Discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. What, Nina? What, Doc? Well, it's spooky season. It is Halloween. It is Spooktober, yes. and I am ready for it. Yes, and so I have a medieval scary story for you today. All right, hit me. Okay, this is the story of St. Erkenwald. Saint, Saint Erkenwald. Okay. Not one of the very major saints. He he was famous in Anglo-Saxon England. He's a 7th century saint. He has a role, I think, in Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English Nation. And, Vulnerable uh, Bade. Venerable Bade. The Venerable Bade. Bade. Yes, Bade, yes, right? that's yeah, right. Okay. Yes. That guy. I, I, call, I called him the Vulnerable Bade. The, he was, Venerable Bade. Well, in, in, in certain <laughs> moments, he was very vulnerable. He, could, he was, he, and we should respect that. Yes, he had his vulnerable <laughs> side. But this is not about him. This is about St. Erkenwald. St. Erkenwald. Yes. All right, go ahead. All right, so I'll tell you the story of St. Erkenwald. Uh, and by the way, it's not very long. Um, it's, well, let me see. I've got a book here. This one is a 1970-something edition from Boydell and Brewer. Really great old-timey library look here, here to this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is. It does. It has like a 70s feel for it. I can see it from here. Yes. Uh, it is uh, 352 lines. So it's not very long at all. Okay. Uh, so if someone wants to read this and you can handle the, the Middle English uh, or you can find a translation, it won't take you very long. All right. So it begins not with St. Erkenwald himself. So there are workers and they are uh, building a cathedral in London. So already mm-hmm. spooky, right? Uh, and so they are building this cathedral in London. And as they're building a cathedral, as they're ex- excavating, uh, they come across a mysterious tomb that gets unearthed. And it's really okay. spooky. So already like horror cliche, horror cliche, horror cliche <laughs> happening already. So they find this ancient tomb and it has spooky gargoyles and a mysterious language. And they're trying to figure out what is going on and no one can read it. No one can decipher it. And so then there's actually bizarrely a little bit of bureaucracy that goes on. Uh, (laughs) Oh, God. They decide who's going to investigate the tomb. So finally they go in and they open they open the tomb and inside they find an incorrupted corpse, a corpse that has not decayed. But mm-hmm. And they don't know who it is, but it's preserved and it's clearly a king. It's got the clothes and the accoutrement of a king. And so everybody's like, uh, we don't know what's going on here. This is crazy. So we need to call an expert. So they call St. Erkenwald in, who's the local expert, and he comes out there. Uh, to so I'm assuming at this time he's just Erkenwald. He's not saint. Yes, he's just Erkenwald. Okay. Uh, I right. think he's a bishop at this time. Uh, okay. And so Erkenwald shows up and he's like, I also don't know what this is, but I will pray over the body. And so he prays mm-hmm. over the body and the body comes to life and it starts talking and moving. And so creepy. Yes. And so the, most of the most of this back and forth after this is a back and forth of the corpse telling its story mm-hmm. uh, and Erkenwald sort of questioning it. Uh, so we have a creepy corpse that starts talking and he was a Briton. Uh, that is to say, you know, the people who lived 
in England before the Anglo-Saxons came. He was a Briton uh, and he was a judge, but he's dressed in this finery because he was very righteous and very virtuous. But even though the Britons were Christian, he was before the Britons became Christian. So he was a non-Christian. And ah, so, so pagan. Yes, a pagan, a virtuous pagan. Okay. So okay. God has left his corpse incorrupted until... Uh, this time can come part of the back and forth. He says, well, well, my body is in limbo mm-hmm. in hell and not in heaven. It's in limbo. And there's a lot of talk about the sacraments in this, about the importance of the sacraments and how he, cause he was not a Christian. Uh, he didn't do the sacraments. Uh, Erkenwald is, I think he's going to put, if I remember right, he's going to put some holy water on it, but he starts weeping over this corpse. And because a, he's a saint. Uh, and so he's holy and B these tears are happening just as he was preparing the holy water. The tears themselves act as holy water and they fall onto the body. And thus mm-hmm. it receives the sacrament of baptism and it turns into dust. And then the unnamed uh, dead ghost, I guess, goes into heaven at that point. Well, that's really handy. <laughs> yes. And that's the story of St. Erkenwald, which is really less about St. Erkenwald and more about this dead guy, this ghost slash zombie corpse so it's an incorruptible corpse do you want to explain what that means for the non-catholics or anyone who's really just unfamiliar with that term sure so there are lots of things that kind of traditional things about saints there are lots of ways you can become a saint but there are a few things that saints tend that some saints will have like you know being virgin martyrs some of Mm -hmm. them have stigmata doing doing miraculous works in their lives I would say your tears being holy water would be one of those, but <laughs> uh, but I'm not making the rules here. But one of the things that's common among saints is that then their body, after they're buried, is incorrupted. So they'll bury the saint, and then for some reason they'll want to move the body, maybe because there's a new monastery that is dedicated to them or something, they want to move them there. So they want to move the body, and then when they go... To move the body, they find the body is still perfectly preserved. It's incorrupted. Um, this is pretty common among saints. And the idea here is that an important part of Christian doctrine isn't that you go to heaven and you're a kind of disembodied spirit floating around in heaven. Rather, that the physical body is resurrected in the way that Jesus's body is resurrected. So this is why desecrating corpses is considered bad and that this is a sign for us uh, not that everyone who who is going to go to heaven will have an uncorrupted body when they're buried, but rather it's a sign for us this miracle that our bodies will be will be recreated and not in mm-hmm. a rotten form. It's super common among saints. And what's really interesting about this is it isn't Erkenwald who's uncorrupted. It's this virtuous pagan who's uncorrupted. And then his tears give it the sacrament and thus save the virtuous saint. And then the body corrupts. Uh, and turns into dust. And so in many ways, it's a kind of reversal of what we would normally think of, of how a saint would work. So that's a really good question. Like, why is this virtuous pagan whose soul, I'm assuming, is in limbo, according to Catholic doctrine and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Dante? Why would this body be uncorrupted and not just dust at this point? I think the idea is much like the idea of, well, what happened to all the the virtuous people who died before Jesus was born. And the idea is, yeah. well, God can not only can save people, uh, wh- whoever he wants, but he will sort of save people who out of ignorance didn't follow him. And so in this case, 
he's sort of it seems like he's just sort of put aside uh in mm-hmm. this pagan tomb just and god just preserves him knowing well Erkenwald's is going to come along and he'll save him so this corpse can just hang out here for a few centuries until Erkenwald gets see. here so thematically what what are we to take from this poem though because I, I don't want to necessarily get too deep into the doctrinal stuff since that's mm-hmm. a little bit above our pay grade but for anyone reading this poem say if you were to if you were to assign this poem as a homework assignment which i'm i'm pretty sure you may have before i have not but thanks for oh you have okay. assuming that yeah yeah I think this is a good idea. Um, if you were to assign this poem as a homework assignment, you were to ask the question, why was the corpse found incorrupt, even though it was pagan? What kind of answer would you look for? If I were going to ask that question. So one of the things he talks about a lot is sacraments. And mm-hmm. some other common commentators have said that at that time, there was a big argument in the church about the role of the sacraments in saving someone. Um, Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I actually am not super familiar with what the debates were at that time in England, sort of specific ones. So I'm going to defer to them and say that this was the case. And so Mm -hmm. essentially the idea is that even if God is saying, I'm going to preserve you, he's only preserving you until you get those sacraments. The sacraments themselves are essential, okay. that, that the church has a role in your ultimate salvation and in the giving of those sacraments. And I guess also in here, arguably, we could say that God is sort of saying, hey, this this guy who was so righteous and virtuous, but he was not a Christian. If he had been born at the right time, he would have been a Christian. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give him the membership card. He just has to wait for someone to come in to validate it basically uh, through the sacrament of baptism. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just stand in line for a while and someone will come around to like wave you through the gates, you know? So I I wanted to to bring up for either the Catholics or former Catholics listening, a very good example, or maybe the, the non-Catholics who are interested, but a very good example of the most recent incorrupted saint I could think of would be Padre Pio. Mm -hmm. His story was pretty interesting. um, And I'm giving a thousand foot example or a thousand foot uh, description here. I I believe Christ appeared to him when he was just a teenager and asked him, what do you want more than anything in this world? And his response was to help people. And Christ was so impressed by that response. He said, okay, I'm going to give you the power to heal everyone. Also, I'm going to give you the stigmata. So (laughs) what's the stigmata, Nina, for those who might not know? Okay. Stigmata are the wounds of Christ. Through the the wrist or hands, through the feet, they're usually for life as well. So Mm -hmm. you can always see the open wounds. He was given that. People would come to him, like flock to him and ask, you know, I'm hurt, I'm sick, uh, I'm dying. And he would lay hands on them and they would be cured. And thus he was beatified. I am so hard at that word. He was sanctified. Beatified, yeah. Beatified. After his uh, his death in the 1960s, I believe. So he was the last of the incorrupted saints of the 20th century. When he died, I believe when they exhumed his body, they found him in fair condition. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> I I don't want to I don't I don't want to say too much about the incorruptibility there. But he was found in fair condition. Yeah. I always thought that was a very interesting story. And I think we should say that also incorruptibility is not a necessary condition for for a saint. No, there are so many saints. There's yeah, there's so many canonized saints that have not been found. Really, I, I don't think their bodies have been found or 
that have been accepted into you know sainthood. And so like you have all these like uh, you know bones of the apostles and things that are floating around uh, different European monasteries. Obviously, if they've got this part of the apostles' body, they at some point decayed, right? So uh, mm-hmm. they're definitely they're definitely saints. But it is one of the things if you're like, is that guy really a saint? And then you you know open their tomb a hundred years later, and there they are. You think, okay, yeah. well, I guess I guess they must have been a saint after all. When we were vamping before this, and we were talking about Lenin. and his incorruptibility but i don't know if he's going to be accepted into the catholic canon anytime soon i suspect uh i suspect not that's not (laughs) that is not a likely outcome here getting back to the poem though Mm -hmm. uh who wrote this you you mentioned uh venerable bade i suppose he's not the author of this poem no this poem's written much later than that and it's interesting this apparently is the autumn of sir gawain because Many, oh, okay. uh, many scholars have argued that this is written by the same poet who wrote Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's written in that dialect, a kind of uh, a Northumbrian, a, a kind of Northern dialect in England. So if you read it, if you get the Middle English and you read it, it might be a little harder to read than you might expect. Though if you can read Sir Gawain in the original language, you can you could pull this off for sure. Mm-hmm. And so I would say it's for most modern English readers, it's going to be a little harder than Chaucer, uh, but exactly as hard as Sir Gawain the Green Knight. Uh, others, I think more recently, the scholarly consensus has moved away from it being the Gawain poet because there's some stylistic things there that just don't seem right. And I have to say, like, it never occurred to me until I heard that it might be from the Gawain poet. It never occurred to me that it might be. Uh, recently, I reread it after reading Sir Gawain the Green Knight for a class I was teaching. So I reread Sir Gawain the Green Knight, and then I read this with that in mind, and I also didn't see it. So I I, I am skeptical mm-hmm. that this is the same poet. Now, of course, poets can write in different styles, etc. But I feel like we just want a celebrity author for this, you know. Uh, I get it, yeah. And okay. so I, I kind of think it isn't. But if you look through the scholarly history, the, the scholars who have presented the idea before weren't a bunch of idiots. They, they, knew, they knew of what they were speaking. And some of them were way more expert in Sir Gawain the Green Knight. So take my judgment for what it's worth. But I, I didn't see it there. Well, I can kind of see the comparison. But like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is dark, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have the same creepiness as this poem this poem is more it's almost got that lovecraftian feel to it like it's really like eerie and you know you expect three thousand years of horror to emerge from it you know yeah i and i think that's i mean what we have here that's very similar to hp lovecraft for those who aren't familiar with him was Mm -hmm. a pulp writer from the early 20th century um you know actually the unearth an ancient tomb there are gargoyles. There's a mysterious yeah. language that no one can can translate. All that's very much like in the mode that H.P. Lovecraft does. And, and Lovecraft, though his is not a Christian universe, there's no... Uh, <laughs> there are gods, but not, no not one nice co- ones. No god coming to help you. Yeah, no. that's right. If there's a god coming, the god's coming to eat you. Yeah. If you're lucky, you'll get an insane god who doesn't care about you one one way or the other. You know, so it doesn't have a happy ending if you're in a Lovecraft story most of the time. But the idea that there's ancient uh, supernatural things around, very Lovecraftian. I don't want to jump ahead to your recommendation. So aside from your recommendation, <laughs> aside from your recommendation, what do you really 
denotes a, a Lovecraft feel to a story. Um, well, beside the racism and anti-Semitism, <laughs> which I got to mention, if we're going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, you mentioned something dark and dank and that feeling of insanity and the lack of, oh, the lack of description. Mm -hmm. So I think back to what you said years and years and years ago when we were reading Paradise Lost, mm. how sin was described. Remember, sin was described or, or, as not being this. Or do you mean you mean death? Death, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, it was death. Yeah. Death was not this. Death was not that. I feel like Lovecraft kind of did the same thing, only more eerie. By the way, a little a little Halloweeny fact for you about Paradise Lost. The description of death is in book two, two being the number of the devil, not complete like three, the number of the Trinity. And it starts on line six, six, six. Dun dun dun! There's our our sting. Uh, anyway, so most authors, if something starts book two, line six six six, I think it's a coincidence. Not for Milton. I totally believe he did that on purpose. Oh yeah. But I'll tell you this: this Lovecraftian and Miltonian strategy of not describing something that's horrifying, like that's even something I use. So in from A to Zombie, available in, with from mm -hmm. fine booksellers now. Uh, a to yeah. Zombie. Uh, there are some <laughs> horrifying scenes, some scenes yes. of slaughter. I guess it's a spoiler for me children. to tell. Yes. One is like death of children where the narrator refuses to describe it. And uh, yeah. in fact, when I first started writing it, I just began to describe it. And I thought, well, this is terrible. Uh, and what I needed to do was use that Lovecraftian plan of I'm just not going to describe the thing. For example, in this one, we have this mysterious writing. What does it look like? What does it say? We never know. It's part yeah. of the mystery that's behind it. And we can only then imagine it. You do some, well, not some, but you do a lot of describing really horrible stuff in your upcoming book too. <laughs> I just want to point out. I know we had a discussion not too long ago about whether or not you're a horror writer. You yes. kind of are, Doc. <laughs> So I deny that I'm a horror writer. So the next book is The Watch of Traxxas, which is probably yeah. going to be out a few weeks after this drops. So we're This is around Thanksgiving. Yeah, around Thanksgiving of 2021 yeah. for those who are listening to this later. I assert to you that it is more of a fantasy novel, but when you argued that it was a horror novel, I was taken aback. And when you started to describe what was horror about it, yeah, uh, I'm not going to say you don't have a point. Thank you. And I think that readers will agree with me when I, I point it out. I think we'll have a separate podcast. We'll have like a, a mini episode or a one episode off where we talk about it. And I think oh, everyone will agree with me. We could do that. I hadn't even given that any thought. Yeah. Uh, I guess we could do that. I think we should. Okay. Yeah. We'll put that in the hopper. Maybe we could do that. Sure. But yeah, so I mean, I was influenced by Lovecraft in there. Uh, although the tone is totally not like Lovecraftian at all in From A to Zombie. It's much, much, much lighter. And not like this either. It's not creepy, I don't think. Yeah. Although maybe you think it's no. creepy. Maybe I just am wrong about that too. It is creepy. <laughs> <laughs> the creepiest accidental horror writer you'll ever know. You know, it could have been worse. <laughs> I could have found out I was accidentally writing erotica. That would have been uh, a bigger There's uh, There's no accident to that. I mean, you... <laughs> You are intentional in writing erotica. <laughs> My fourth book. No, I'm I don't want to give too much away. It's called the, the Secret Love Lives of Medievalists. So. Oh, yeah. I got a lot of that. Do you want to get into some recommendations? Yeah, well, let's hear your recommendation. 
All right. Yes. Segway from uh, HP Lovecraft into my recommendation, which is the movie Reanimator uh, from 1985. We talk about reanimating corpses, and that's got a lot of this in here. It's a very pulpy, very campy, gory, nasty, but altogether fun romp from based on an, an H.P. Lovecraft story called was it Herbert oh, West I think Herbert West Herbert Reanimator? Herbert West Re- yeah Herbert Reanimator. West Reanimator yeah I I could not remember the title if it was Herbert West the Reanimator or Herbert West colon Reanimator but it's got Reanimator in the title <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the star of it is uh, icon Jeffrey Combs yes who was also in a fantastic 90s horror movie called The Frighteners. Yes. Which was Peter Jackson's last kitschy movie before he went on to direct the Lord of the Rings trilogy and blew up to mythic proportions. Yes. Yeah, before I knew Peter Jackson as, you know, the director of the Lord of the Rings, I'm like, Peter Jackson, he directed all those schlocky B horror movies. But anyway, no, Reanimator, fantastic movie. Please go see it when you have the time and energy and stomach for it. It's really, really gross. (laughs) Well, you know, this seems like an aside, but since it's our Halloween episode, I'll throw this out there. So if you want, if you've seen the Frighteners, I remember seeing the Frighteners and being like, this guy's doing Lord of the Rings and going into Lord of the Rings thinking, what is, what, what hot garbage could this possibly be? And thinking, wow, I don't, I don't see much of, of this at all. But then when you get to the return of the King and you get the ghosts in there, they are essentially the same exact same ghost style that you have in the Frighteners. Yes. And when I saw the orcs coming to life for the first time, oh, I saw yeah. that in, yeah, in not the Frighteners, but in Dead Alive. Dead Alive, yes. Uh, I think it has two titles. I think there was a, maybe there's a different title that's been released under two. Yeah, yeah Dead Alive, which is very campy and silly and, and gross. So gross. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Jeffrey Combs, as long as we're doing this deep dive in non-medieval movies, he mm-hmm. also did another Lovecraftian movie called I think From Beyond. From Beyond. Yes. From Beyond. Oh my God. Yes. yes. I love From Beyond. Which is only in the loosest way based on a lo- anything Lovecraft, I think. But it's very Lovecraftian. There is so much BDSM yes. in From Beyond. It's just, I won't go any further. It is. <laughs> I think it wants to be sexy, but it's just funny. It's awkward, yes. but it's, yeah. I mean, it's great, but not in like, that way it's just great as in okay i see what you're trying to do you're not you're not pulling it off but you know a plus for effort (laughs) well i unlike you who has left our theme of the medieval i am going to return us to the medieval in the great very serious it's a very serious medieval movie a film of medieval horror by the great sam raimi Evil Dead 3, Army of Darkness. Oh, okay. I knew as soon as you said Sam, Sam Raimi, I was like, serious, what? <laughs> yes, Evil Dead 3, Army of Darkness, in which our anti-hero Ash goes back in time to King Arthur's time, where they are being attacked by Deadites, which is this army of the dead, and Ash, uh, using his boomstick and his completely amoral attitude and his chainsaw hand, has to defend the court against the uh, army of the dead, which, by the way, he made worse himself. 
by misquoting The Day the Earth Stood Still, which sounds like a non sequitur, but if you watch it. Vrata (laughs) necktie. (laughs) Oh, man, yes. I have the poster for Army of Darkness in my hallway. And a fun fact about that movie, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know, I feel like I've told you and Engineer Mike this about it before, but it actually has two different endings. And one ending was released I think in Europe and Asia and another ending was released in America. And I saw army of darkness the first time in, I'm going to say Korea. I think it was. And Mm -hmm. in that ending, Ash makes a mistake in the dosage of the thing in the end. And he then goes too far in time to come back to the present. And he comes out in a post-apocalyptic future where the dead have taken over. Yeah, I remember you telling us about this. And that's really, really sad. Well, the problem is, it was fun. But the problem is now it can't be canon because then there's the Evil Dead series that does not take place in a post-apocalyptic future. And of course, Ash, who comes back and uh, is working at S-Mart. I really like the Ash at S-Mart. <laughs> I actually think it's a better Shop ending right. than the Shop one I S-Mart. saw. But it was very mm-hmm. weird to talk about Army of Darkness for years and people having a totally different memory of the ending. I thought, what is wrong with these idiots? Uh, and it wasn't <laughs> until I saw it again and thought like, wait, what? that I, I looked it up and found out that it had two endings. Both endings are fine. Both endings are fun. Uh, it is, as you might note from the tone, not actually a serious movie at all. Uh, it's entirely no. silly and kind very of said quotable. Yes, very quotable. Mm-hmm. It is extremely mm-hmm. quotable. In fact, today I was reading a graphic novel adaptation of Beowulf set in the modern era, and someone referred to that movie and referred to her father's sawed-off shotgun as his boomstick. Boomstick. Yes. Yes. So, there we go. So it's that we brought it back to the Middle Ages. See, it comes back to a graphic novel adaptation of Beowulf called The Monster of Wolf Bay. The Beast of Wolf Bay. Oh, I might have gotten that wrong. So uh, <laughs> Oh, you know what? I will I'll I'll get that right and we'll put a link in the show notes since I don't want to denigrate someone's fine graphic novel well i know the one way to end this to bring this back to saint erkenwald what's that hail to the king baby (laughs) hail to the king (laughs) happy halloween nina happy halloween and west through hall doc west through hall nina pop and evil was recorded under in the studio the hosts are dr richard scott noakes and nina mcnamara our audio engineer is engineer mike music is courtesy of dr john jinwright for more information visit our website at profawesome.com slash pop that's P-R-O-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E dot com slash pop video. Thank you for listening. And his tears fall on it and they act as a baptism. And that baptism mm, okay. then uh, uh, releases the soul from, from bloody hell. Did you just hear that? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, that... <laughs> <laughs> You said bloody hell. <laughs> Michael, you just sent me an email and my phone freaking buzzed and it's on, what do you call it, mode? There was a test. By the way, Michael, I have to say I'm deeply disappointed in you and you failed me. When I suggested that we let you choose our movie, you chose something so entirely conventional in Excalibur. Excalibur. And I thought you were going to do some sort of, uh, I don't know, Beastmaster or... Uh, <laughs>